Thank you, Pastor. I appreciate those kind words. Definitely undo. If we could bow for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank Thee this day for being able to come before this congregation, and most especially, Father, for being able to come before Thee in this Thy house of prayer. Guide and direct us this day, Father. May Thy truth ever be spoken, Father. May You ever help to mold and, and make our hearts, Father, what You desire us to be. And I just pray this all in the precious name of Thy Son, my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, the title for my lesson that I have today is Calling All Captains, Calling All Captains. And what I'd like to do is start in Luke chapter 17 and verse 26. And as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it also be in the days of the Son of Man. Now, Noah was the captain of the ark. And to have a generational theology requires captains under a divine commander, Jesus Christ. So let's ask ourselves some questions, shall we? Am I, as a man, at the control center of my ark, spiritually leading my family, my crew? Am I, as a wife, as the first mate, being the best first mate and not creating mutiny? Am I raising my sons and daughters with faith or religion? As a captain, do I have the respect and admiration of my crew? When the captain is injured, will your crew throw you overboard or nourish you back to health? Now, as we've gathered here today, I'm sure you've noticed that there is a great multitude of young people around us, correct? Amen. Thank God. Well, good news. They aren't all mine, as you just seen. <laughs> but what a blessing, wouldn't you agree? Amen? Now, as a young man, I can honestly say that I never even thought about having children. Uh, that just wasn't something that I, I thought about footballs. Um, and quite honestly, I was pretty proud of just keeping myself alive. Uh, and as many would report that knew me when I was younger, I had a car fetish. I just couldn't find the right one. So, But then I conned Rachel into marriage and she convinced me because she kept her cat and me alive that children would be a piece of cake. So we agreed four is a nice number. I meant four total. She meant four for me, four for her. And wouldn't you know it, one of her four was twins. Surprise. So for those who might be mathematic, pardon me, mathematically challenged, that comes to nine children. Now, this would be a nice place to repeat after me, oh dear, oh dear, yes indeed, oh dear, I reproduced. So, Rachel started learning how to cook, and then I decided to have a job would be a necessary thing for me. Now, I worked as a part salesman at a tractor dealership, and Rachel worked for social services, also known as the welfare department, until Haley was born. Now, I can say Rachel and I had barely been married two weeks when Rachel rolls out of bed, smacks her head on the nightstand, and gets a huge black shiner on her eye. Well, her co-workers, working in the welfare department, automatically assumed I was a wife beater and interrogated her immensely at work, including her boss. Now, and boy, did those women give me dirty looks when I picked her up at work. Could be that because I just sat outside and honked. <laughs> I'm not sure. So then it was just sola jabola miola. Now, I 
asked Reed. I believe that is Latin for sole provider, correct, Reed? <laughs> Perhaps not. So, Now, I became laid off due to really slow times in farming. And so not long after Rachel and I found out she was with child. So unlike today, jobs were scarce back then. So we'd been married about six months, I believe, when, when uh, Rachel and I had found out she was with child. Now, my father-in-law was self-employed, so he took on extra work. Uh, he mechanic is a combine there it is his shop it in his garage so he took on extra work to be able to employ me too now i worked on my current employer that i'm employed with now for about eight months uh, until he finally took a chance maybe he just dialed the wrong number i, I don't know <laughs> and he hired me four weeks before haley was born so now i started a mechanic for five dollars and fifty cents an hour so now my own tools and my tools weren't provided as well so that kind of gives you a little update on what the what it's like to uh, try and have a family back then. So that was better though than actually than my father-in-law because he paid me in beans. <laughs> Soybeans to be exact. No joke, no joke. Now he farmed too and it worked better for both of us. A uh, thing, little thing called taxes. Uh, and he did provide lunch too so that was pretty good. So now I do miss and love my father-in-law very much. Uh, you see my adopted father passed away five days after my 17th birthday. So my mother never remarried. So my children only had one grandfather, which was my daughter, which my daughter Aaron will never know. That will barely know actually. So now he was uh, also my loving earthly father for many years. So what is the point of all this? I'm sure you're wondering. Everyone has a story and many times there is more to their story than you may ever know. Everyone has their struggles in life. And being able to look back now that I'm past 25, <laughs> twice, I see God's hand upon my life when I thought I was walking alone. And perspective is what Rachel and I have tried raising our children with. Now, what is that perspective you're probably wondering? It's put God first. Amen. We are all looking for the answer to raising the perfect child, being the perfect spouse, how to have God multiply our bank accounts. Now, we buy the books, we attend the seminars, we memorize all the right power verses for success. And yet here you are listening to me. <laughs> Friends, you just might have reached the bottom of the barrel. Now, I haven't written the book on how to make poor decisions, but I do believe I could be used for research. You can be forgiven for past mistakes, but you don't forget them. I can't believe my in-laws even considered me for marrying their daughter, to be quite honest. And trust me, a lot of parents held that same poor opinion about me. That is not a lie. But soon after marrying Rachel, I realized something. The joke was on me. Just kidding, dear. Now, in the third book of John, chapter 1, verses 2 through 5, I'll read. Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. For I rejoice greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in, in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Yes. Beloved, thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers. The biggest thing that destroys any relationship, either with a spouse or a child, is to not walk in truth. True success in life is a testimony spoken in a view of your truthfulness. Now, truth has no degrees or shades. A half-truth is a whole lie, and a white lie is really black. 
That's a quote from John MacArthur there. Now, making it a priority to tell the truth is very important in small children. As they grow up, so will their lies. Surely they will grow out of it. Is it really that big of a deal? And they are just such cute stories. I know some of, it, some of the yarns that can be told are really quite comical. And I've heard a lot of them. And now I know all of us will say, well, my parents grew out of it. It's just a stage. Well, a pig is still a pig, even if it's wearing lipstick. Amen. Lying is lying. It isn't defined by age, but by the action. Now, the Notre Dame for, has a Center for Ethical Leadership, and they had an article entitled, What Dishonesty Does to Your Brain. Now, what these researchers did, they, they were two, uh, the University at the College of London and Duke University got together, and they basically wanted to determine what happens to our brain when we lie. So what they used was what's called an fMRI machine, basically a magnetic resonancing, resonance imaging machine to study the brain and see what happens to people. Now what they studied was is the part which is considered the, the emotion center of the brain, which is two small almond-like little objects in, inside your head there that are called the amygdala. Uh, and the amygdala react, they found out, during these tests. So here's what they did. They basically took out and they devised a task in which study participants could receive money by doing what they wanted them to do and what they did was they presented them with pictures of 30 jars, glass jars, each containing between 1,500 and 3,500 pennies. Now the participants were asked to estimate one at a time how many pennies were in the jar. Then the participants sent advice via a computer to a partner whom they were told would submit an estimate on behalf of both of them. So basically you're estimating and then you send to your partner and your partner does the actual estimate. Now, in one key version of this experiment they did, they were told that they would be paid according to how much their partner overestimated, while their partner would be paid according to how accurate his or her estimate was. Now, as you may expect, participants faced a temptation to do something unethical, to lie about how many pennies they thought they were in the jar so they could receive more money for themselves, even though it meant less money for their partner. At first, participants lied only just a little. Then they inflated their estimates only a few hundred pennies and more and more than they believed was actually in the jar. But over the course, the course of this study, their estimates became higher and higher. By the end of their study, the estimates were nearly twice as high as when they began. In other words, dishonesty snowballed. It was all about the money. So what did they learn from this? Well, what they learned was is by watching the brain, they could tell that there was a reaction to it. But what they learned was is that, that the more lying that the people did, there was less and less of an emotion. And eventually it came to the point where there was, there was none. Now what they've also discovered is, is people that have an injury to the brain and have an amygdala removed, it also, they're, they're fearless. They know no emotion of fear whatsoever. They don't fear anything, which can actually be a bad thing because we, as we know, much like a child, if they're not told, taught by touching something hot sometimes, they'll never fear it. You know, the, the, not having the emotion of fear is not a good thing. I mean, it doesn't make you a great soldier. So, so what did they learn from it that they said that we can put in practice? Well, there was three things that they talk about. One of them was to beware of t people that tell little lies. And basically they said that follows a biblical example that you would have. And that was from... Uh, 
It was found in Luke chapter 16 and verse 10. And it reads, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is also is unjust also in much. And they say, at least in the basic sense, that small lies tend to lead certainly to larger lies. So when you observe even small lapses in a person's integrity, it stands to reason that they may do more gravely unethical things in the future. Particularly if they never receive pushback or punishment that would help them change course. And if you want to know who's at least likely to tell lies, it might be good to look for someone that is prone to feeling guilt. And in raising several of our children now, we do have those that were more guilty than those that weren't. So there were some that would take our chocolates and some that would not. Right, Kylie? <laughs> so what can we do? Well, two things we can majorly do, especially with our children, and that's to build integrity with small acts of honesty. You can reverse this in your brain. And that's the neat thing about a, a, a brain, that they're only starting to truly understand many of the biblical principles that are put forth in the Bible that we just read over and think they're, you know, they're just old things that were written and nice sayings and stuff. There's a lot of wisdom in them that we don't even truly understand that is starting to come forth more and more with science. But they say if the recipe for big lies is consistent dishonesty over time, then the recipe for truth, even about small, seeming irrelevant things, do not underestimate, sorry, do not underestimate the power of telling the truth, even about small, seeming irrelevant things. Doing so consistently helps you to maintain a keen sensitivity to dishonesty, and it may just help you to make the right choice under pressure. And they say another thing is to take a look at your gut responses. Now, they suggested that negative feelings we have about telling lies provide important information and can help us avoid getting caught in a cycle of dishonesty. But it also highlights how emotional sensitivity can change over time. And they say additionally, if you're doing something unethical that benefits other, you may have fewer negative feelings. Sometimes we can justify our actions because, well, it's helping someone else. But dishonesty is still dishonesty. You may be taking food from your restaurant, let's say, that you may work at and feeding the, a homeless person or something like that. But if you haven't really cleared it with your manager, let's say, and secondly, you aren't paying for it as well out of your own pocket, it's, it's technically it's stealing. But you will feel better about it because you're helping a homeless person. But in all honesty, it's, well, in all honesty, it's still an act of dishonesty. Now, they say this suggests that the act of helping another person can mask the negative feelings we would otherwise feel about dishonesty. So in short, we should listen to our gut, but recognize that feelings are imperfect guides in decision making. Feelings are imperfect guides in decision making. The next time you're tempted to lie, keep your amygdala in mind and recognize that your choices do not just shape the outside world. They also shape your inner world, the world of your mind, your character, and your emotions in ways that they are only just now beginning to observe and, and understand. Now, as a parent, as well as a grandparent, I have learned everyone has their own version of what happened. And if we read the Gospels, we understand that every Gospel, the writer had a different point of view that could be added to what was there. You must try the spirits. Now, parents, it is our responsibility to sort out a matter. How many of us will tell about a situation involving ourselves in an altercation with another and tell how we totally wronged that other person? 
It's not very likely, is it? Or perhaps instead we may brag about it, how we, boy, we, we, got, we got even with them. Now, our children are no different. They will work us to the point that we believe we should wring that other child's neck. Now, it is very easy to fall into the trap of always believing our child. That's what we want to do. We've raised them. I mean, they're part of me. They should honestly, that they should know everything that I, you know, I did everything the right way. So don't, don't believe everything your child tells you. Be a fact checker. Ask yourself if the matter at hand is so important that I believe in allowing the destruction of a friendship. Teach your child to work out their own issues. Don't seek to win the battle for them. You are a life coach and the goal is to teach, not win the battle by running onto the field. The better we teach them relationship skills now, the better marriage they will have someday. Everyone is into self-preservation. Every story that we may tell always will have the light of us looking better. No one really likes to downplay their, their efforts that they put forth. And our children will have better friendships because the proper interrogation of disagreements teaches our children to think. To think about their actions, their words, and their deeds. All of these have a price attached. They must be taught to consider the feelings of the other party. And it also builds self-respect. They will have the ability to look someone in the eye and feel confident about how they are treating them. If we really want the divorce rate to disappear in the church, then it starts by teaching our children to work out differences without hostile intervention. A coach that goes onto the field in any sporting event gets ejected. You never know how well you are teaching without your children being tested. If we always intervene on our children's behalf, especially just in their favor, how well will that work when they are married and have no skills to solve marital problems? Let me repeat that. How well will that work when they are married and have no skills to solve marital problems? Crews mutiny because we as parents aren't living out what we preach and lose their respect. Respect is the hardest thing to earn, easiest thing to lose, and once you have lost it, you may spend a lifetime getting it back. Parenting is tough. Don't think you have lost their love when they say mean things about you. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verses 21 through 22. And take no heed unto all words that are spoken, lest thou hear thy servant curse thee. For oftentimes also thine own heart knoweth that thou likewise hast cursed others. So why bring all of this pain of teaching to ourselves as a parent? It's because we, we are to love our brethren. And to do not do this is to risk their souls for eternity. In Revelation chapter 21 verse 8. It reads, but the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. To search out the truth matters, period. It is important enough that in Jordan Peterson's 12 rules for life, it is rule number eight. Tell the truth or at least don't lie. Now, for those of you that don't know, Jordan Peterson actually condensed down, he has 42 rules for life. And for the book, he condensed it down to 12. And telling the truth made the top 12. Actually, I guess we could say it made the top 10. 
James chapter 3, verse 2. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. Offenses, just like rough seas, will come, captains. The time to prepare is now, not during. You must be all that you want your children to be. You can't drive or drag teenagers to godliness in heaven. You must lead them. Many Christian families have been very careful to protect their children, only to discover that the devil is in the air we breathe, the food we eat, and even in our children in our neighbor's pew. Many captains are afraid of failure, so they will go nowhere and do nothing, but seek to stay afloat in their own private bay. Could that be the real reason for the growth in home churches? Why our own private bay, we might ask? Because the child's world is what is before their eyes, and we captains don't want mutiny. Someone else's art may look more inviting. Wow, over there's a real party going on. What are they so happy about? I'm going over there to check that out. Captains, we can blame the seas, we can blame the other captains, but ultimately we are at the controls. Captains, do we speak about the world with such longing in our voice that our crew feels you aren't really headed where you say your heart is? 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. We captains are to train our crew to be the captains and first mates of their own ark someday. We captains must have the ability to train our crew to navigate all the conditions of the sea. But how can we do that? Well, let me ask you this. Are you really joyful with your life? Be truthful. Are you, speak, are you seeking the truth of the spirit, the fruit of the spirit and the truth, which is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance? Do you have a love for life, an infectious zest for life? And do you instill that in your crew? A captain with confidence in his def destination has a much greater chance of keeping his crew. And a brotherhood of confident captains makes an armada. Remember, joy comes when we see our children walk in truth. So where do we start? With respect. Now, how do we get that? by example, starting with our spouse. This is the crew's respect that we're after, not the world's respect. Now, for those not married, you still might pay attention because a marriage is most importantly a friendship with vows attached and other responsibilities. Now, arguments occur within relationships and how we work out those arguments is how we get respect. No argument should include the accusation of unfounded name-calling. They may be a dork, but calling them a dork doesn't exactly spark conversation. <laughs> what can the other person do but retaliate or walk away? You're a dork! You're a dork and fatty, so there! <laughs> Nothing solved. And life-lasting wounds can be inflicted. People love attention more than anything else. Why do we dress the way we do, drive what we drive? Why doesn't everyone's houses look the same? Because we are putting forth the image of what we want people to believe about us. 
which is not always who we really are. Now, let's say I would love to have my wife, Rachel, greet me at the door when I get home. This goes on for weeks. I open the door and she just sits in the recliner watching Hallmark. And then one day I, I lose it. I accuse her of being a lazy dork. And I throw some Bible verse like, let's say, Ephesians 5.22. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. And then I give her my list of expectations. Oh, yes, fight's on. You see, when you, are, you get married, it doesn't come with the ability to read their mind. I've tried. It don't work. Every good marriage or friendship requires a desire for communication. Gentlemen, belching the alphabet isn't communication. <laughs> Ladies, eye rolling and finger tap. Eye rolling isn't sign language and finger tapping is not Morse code. <laughs> Marriage is two people coming together with different expectations, desires, and flaws. Don't expect there to be no training in marriage. There is training. Trust me, it starts with toothpaste. Do you squeeze at the bottom, squeeze at the middle, or do you not squeeze it at all? I know that sounds ridiculous, but do you just go through life learning nothing? No, you train. Don't get hung up on this word training, please. Gentlemen, why is it called weight training? For a job, we receive training for the job and move more training to keep up to date with that job. Would you train for the Olympics? I wouldn't, I, they wouldn't call me, but. And most of all, would we read the Holy Bible and say, well, that was pretty good and never reread it. You see, when I came to the door with expectations that Rachel didn't know. So after several trips to Hobby Lobby, prepaid, Rachel and I talked. Men desire for the admiration of their wives first and foremost. I don't care how successful the man is. When a man has the admiration of his wife, he becomes 10 feet tall and bulletproof. Indeed. Yep. I'm only six feet, so that tells you where I stand. <laughs> but ladies and gentlemen, you have to remember, you became one. Yes. A marriage is a living cell with two parts. That one part cannot thrive without the other part. So I tell Rachel I would love for her to greet me at the door. Now, Rachel thinks I'm being a big dork, but well, why not? Next night, Rachel meets me at the door and throwing it open says, here I am, smoochy poo, happy. And she goes off to continue her hallmark. Now, first thing, she did the request. Rachel did it really, really badly. Yes, she did, but she did it. That is what you must see. And be patient and let your spouse do it really, really badly. Don't punish them for something that they did right. Right being Rachel did what I asked. Training, remember? Training is rarely doing something you really want. It is the goals reached you want. Getting the better job placement due to training. Finally having six-pack abs instead of a dad bod due to weight training. 
So I thank Rachel. And, and the thing you have to realize is those of you who are probably sitting there trying to imply your mind, oh, he's just trying to train his wife. No, it's training of both. That's the thing you have to, I'm trying to learn how to communicate. And she's trying to learn that what my expectations are and how for us to both have a better relationship. It goes both ways. I may be using just her in this instance, but gentlemen, do not think that I do not mean that it doesn't go both ways. It does. Training is just a word that gets everybody's mind hung up on it. But if they truly think it through, there's a lot to what is being said. So I thank Rachel for meeting me at the door and I tell her how much it means to me. And I don't point out that I didn't like her tone of voice and it wasn't done with love. Now, I'm grateful for Rachel just meeting my expectation. Gentlemen, we have to be aware, and many times we do this in marriage, we set our expectations way beyond what's really, truly plausible. I mean, just for her to meet me at the door was all I asked. I didn't ask her for her to meet me at the door, throw her arms around me, haul me in the house, have this wonderful dinner all cooked, and feed me with a spoon. Silver, perhaps. <laughs> That, that wasn't the point. It's building the relationship. Notice and respond to the things done right. Thank them. Don't concentrate on what they did wrong. And this works for children as well. With time, Rachel will actually look forward to greeting me at the door for it will become habit. And Hobby Lobby gifts can, ex or cards, gift cards, those work wonderful. They can help expedite Rachel's training. Now, all people need training. I need training. You need training, physical and spiritual. You have no idea when you first get married what will really make you happy. No person does. And neither does your spouse. This is why relationships flourish when we figure it out together. The couple that trains together remains together. Now, for a word to the married people with children, for a lack of better way to describe it, date nights. Rachel and I haven't consistently done this probably until the last few years. And even now we still struggle with trying to do it consistently, but we wished we would have made it a priority earlier in our marriage. We didn't have much spare time, as you can tell with the children that we had, and we agreed our money could be better spent elsewhere. We were wrong. Your marriage comes together by spending time one-on-one. -on -one. Dreams and adventure were part of the beginning of your relationship. Time together is still as just as important now as then. Now, I recommend to communicate to each other. That means talking, you know, out loud. Perhaps not like I've done today. I wouldn't recommend that. About what you would like to do on a date. Now, that way, knowing each other's expectations, you won't end up in the time spent together that didn't benefit your marriage. Fights can start over butter or no butter on movie popcorn. No joke. That's, that's, you see some really, yeah. Dates are timed together more than the event. Let me repeat that. Dates are timed together more than the event. If a date is going to cause the electricity to be shut off, stop and change the event. Communicate with one another just that you just want to be with them, even if you can only afford to share a free glass of water. Love doesn't recognize price tags. Don't judge the amount of love of your spouse by money spent. But love is the lifeblood of the marriage. But love, if it's not stirred, it will separate. And sometimes it's like oil and water. 
Rachel and I have found together, found that being together just by ourselves, even if it's just to go fill up the car with gas, is a date. A really expensive one here lately. <laughs> but, but remember, it's not the event, but time together. Don't overthink it. Sometimes we men think we have to really sweep our ladies off their feet and really impress them and stuff. And honestly, if we'd communicate, it would save us a lot of time and money, as well as have a much better relationship. So, okay, captains, you've established respect with your first mate. Now, the primary reason that children leave your ark for another is their parents make the voyage of life absolutely miserable. How the crew views the commander relationship is what creates stability and trust. As with any good, solid, respectable leadership, it attracts a desire to be a part of that art. They are going somewhere. If you are having problems with your children, look at your marriage first. Now, I'm not saying that that is always the reason, but every good captain must maintain his art so it is seaworthy. Parenting is the most accurate test of one's character. You see, your crew reflect the soul of their parents, and they manifest the heart of the parents that has formerly been concealed behind sophisticated screens and carefully crafted public perceptions of what we want people to really think and believe about us. Now, when parents have a transformation within, good parenting comes naturally, without all the struggles and deliberations. Pure souls living pure lives don't need a great deal of knowledge about child training to raise good kids. Good children grow out of good parental soil. We parents need to be real, consistently real and caring. We need to be there right in the midst of our children, seeing what they see, breathing the air they breathe, and everything else will somehow fall into place when our hearts are right. A right heart can make up for a lot of incorrect thinking. But great knowledge and understanding can never make up for indifference. Genuine love will cover a multitude of sins. And remember the love that Jesus Christ has for you, your salvation. And let that love shine through you. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves. For charity shall cover the multitude of sins. To be a successful parent... You don't have to suddenly be all wise to know what to do in the many varied situations. Rather, simply by having a good heart and a proper attitude, your children will respond positively to you. Love and respect will fill all the voids left by inexperience and ignorance. You will have a much better response from your children when they perceive that you care more about them than you do about public perception. How many of you are familiar with Dr. James Dobson of Focus on the Family? All right, well, I, you, some of you may have already heard this story. I'll tell you a little bit about it. it. It's relevant. He tells the story of his life when he was a troubled teen. Now, I know looking at him now, you'll think he was a troubled teen. Yeah. Well, a little background. Dr. Dobson's mother couldn't conceive. Now, his father was an evangelist. Uh, he traveled a lot. But he kept praying for his wife and... Uh, that she would conceive. And one night he, he called her and told her that he believed the Lord had told him that she would conceive and it would be a boy. Now she did, and it was a boy. 
Now, he had to be born via C-section, and back in those days, C-section was very dangerous, and he actually came early as well. Uh, and she was told that to have another child would be certain death. So now, Dr. James Dobson is an only child. But here is his words about his dad. Now, I actually took this. There was an, uh, an interview done on him, and what I've done, and I'll, this is him speaking. His words, I should say. He says, when I turned 16, I got the notion that I knew more than my parents did and that it was probably time for me to start making my own decisions. The town I lived in was kind of changing and I was out in some kind of party. We didn't drink or do anything, but we were dancing. And in my church tradition, you didn't do that. When I came home that night, my mother said to me, well, what did you do? And I said, well, I'm learning to dance. And she said, well, you're not going to do that anymore, are you? And I said, no. I am going to do that. Big mistake. Big mistake. My mom just said, well, I'm going to call your dad. And I said, you do that. I had a stake in that conversation, so I went around the corner and I listened to the conversation. She called my dad and she only said three words. I need you. Now, the dad was a prominent evangelist. In, in, in our church. He was slated four years ahead. And she said, I need you. And you know what he did. He got on the train, came home, canceled his entire four-year slate. He was already booked out four years of speaking engagements. Put a stake in the front yard and a sign that said, for sale. He shocked the daylights out of me. And the next thing I knew, he took a church in South Texas and I was on a train heading for San Benito, Texas. And my dad took a pastorate there, and he was with me those last two years. And those last two years that he's speaking of, is he was 16 until he graduated, those last two years of school. He said it was his second big sacrifice on my behalf. And he hunted with me, and he fished with me, and reconnected with me, and he pulled me back. My dad was even willing to sacrifice his own ministry or put it on hold in order to do what was right for me. Now, there's a lot more to the story of Dr. Dobson's life. That's just a piece that I took out of there. But what is even more important was is that Dr. Dobson was about to make the same career mistake that his father had made. And he said, this is what his father told him. And I quote, saving your children and preserving them for the next life requires time. And it cannot be given if it's all sacrificed and laid on the altar of career ambition. Don't make this mistake. Ladies and gentlemen, your children are your legacy. The only one that will endure to future generations. Now, Dr. Dobson's father could have had a huge impact upon a lot of souls, of that I'm sure. But he left it all for his relationship with his son. That son, because of his father's love, has now helped millions. Way more than his father ever could have. Part of that due to technology, I understand. But gentlemen, never lose focus on the most important thing in your life that God has given you. Your wife and your children. James chapter 1 verse 5. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not. And it shall be given him. I can't number the times that I've asked God for wisdom. Sometimes I don't see the wisdom for years, but when I do, I'm in awe. I really am. Now, wisdom isn't always thoughts. 
but what God causes to happen around you in your life. Sometimes the preservation that you don't see. And some of it might make you believe that God's abandoned you. But you have to trust and obey. Study Proverbs enough and you never cease to find new wisdom. So where is a good place to start? Respect your children. Respect is not just a perspective. It is a chain of, res- chain of events resulting from a chain of individual acts. Now, we demonstrate respect to our teenagers when we allow them to have a positive impact upon the home and the younger siblings. We demonstrate respect when we listen to their ideas and treat them with the same seriousness we treat our self-help books. Talk to them and with them and listen to them. Share your thoughts and views in a non-relaxed schoolroom manner. And talk about your likes and define your weaknesses. Now, your weaknesses, not everyone else's weaknesses. Now, my older children discovered that they could just stay up past their bedtime if they just asked me the right question. (laughs) And then the dad lesson would begin. But they slept really well. But the wisdom that I see now is they spent time in conversation with mom and dad about life things. We were listening. They were talking. We were talking. They were listening. The most common last statement that most men, most captains say when some of their crews abandoned their ark is, is they get, hear the words, you didn't listen to me. Take the time to listen, and it can be in a group setting or individually. Now, I know our electronic devices are, are making it harder with our younger children because we are so addicted to them as they are, but it is still doable. Talk and listen. Never belittle your children or devalue their person. Now, I struggle with this area. So what does that mean? To devalue our children is to cast them in the role of unworthiness uh, with a mistaken belief that is the children's responsibility to prove by their works that they are indeed worthy. Now, thankfully, Jesus doesn't deal with us in the same way. So we should live his example. Now, none of us perform well for those who do not believe in us but we kill ourselves trying to live up to the best expectations of those who believe we can do anything and whom we know will be tolerant of our mistakes and shortcomings. Now, my wife, Rachel, has always disliked and brought to my attention that I make her and the children feel like incompetent, worthless idiots with my tone of voice and demeanor. I'm very good at talking down, and I'm learning to think not only about what I am saying, but how I am saying it. Now, Gentlemen, when your first mate lodges a complaint, listen. But most of all, act upon it. Your first mate has the greatest knowledge on your crew's mutiny potential. Now, one of Rachel and I's biggest weaknesses is teaching our children. Now, they learn a lot more from others. And when I say teaching, it's actually trying to teach them whether Rachel is in the trying to teach the girls to cook or whether it's me trying to teach the boys to do something constructive outside. We struggle with that. But what we have learned is that children are happiest when someone depends on them. Everyone needs to feel needed. Being needed gives purpose. Now we have trouble letting them just making the mess and then letting them take three times longer than we'd have just done it ourselves. That's where we struggle. It's just easier just to do it ourselves. And we have trouble sacrificing time because we just don't plan enough for a project 
for the children to help. And it's hard to make every project fun, but I have found with Saxon and Dustin, trips to Dairy Queen boost morale. <laughs> and on your art captains, the first concern of every captain should be the morale of his crew. It is an indicator of your leadership. Also, a happy wife is a happy life. Right, Bobby? <laughs> he didn't hear me. Should have turned it up. <laughs> Projects done together as a family help to build the family unit. Everyone enjoys feeling that there is a purpose to their being in the family, even as something as simple as washing the car. Just remember, captains, hold the hose tightly. And don't become distracted by the first mate's big brown eyes. Giving our children's projects gives them confidence and builds our relationship with them. And that being, it builds trust and respect on both sides. If we could, let's turn to uh, Luke chapter 7. I'd like to read verses 40 through 43. Luke chapter 7, verses 40 through 43. And I'll read them here. And Jesus answering said, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he said, and he saith, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors, the one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me therefore, which of them will love him most? And Simon, ans Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. It's important, captains, that we don't become so critical that we totally write off a young man or a young woman as never, ever, ever going to marry my child, especially in a church. Captains, are you the same today as you were as a child? All the greats in the Bible had great errors in judgment. Where that young man or lady is headed now is more important. When we write off someone for an error on their part, our children follow our teaching and look for someone their parents don't know. Because then we can't find faults, can we? The problem with us all being together in a church setting is we know everything about everybody. And sometimes as parents, we focus on the negative and we forget that we have negative column as well, just as large. The important part is trying, each of us striving to go towards the common goal of seeking to be a true servant and follower of Jesus Christ. We, don't, we aren't born all knowing. The building of future relationships of our children with each other is most importantly dependent on our parental relationships with each other, meaning all of us parents. The relationships that each parent has with other parents is extremely important. The words spoken in our homes about each other are the real relationship with each other. What we truly say about the other families of the church in our homes is the true relationship, not the facade we put on when we're together. Amen. Good and bad 
there is power in the tongue. We desire to have our children be a part of this body, to be able to find someone within this body. But if we as parents totally rule out everyone in the body, they will not be in the body. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. In closing, captains, hold on to and teach by life example your faith. To have a good conscience requires diligence and commitment spiritually and physically. So why does this matter to me? The biggest thing that I think many of us struggle with, and I actually, this morning I was looking up, verifying one of my uh, quotes that I had from someone, and I stumbled upon something else that just popped up on my screen, but it's so pertinent I'd like to mention it right here. How many of you ever have heard of a thing called the trust triad? Okay, well, it's basically, it's kind of a somewhat of a psychological term, but the biggest thing that each of us struggle with is trust. There are three things that we must exhibit, have, to truly have trust. That trust being with each other, with our families, with our spouses. So what are those three things? Number one, concern. You have to have true concern about someone for them to feel that there is trust there. True concern. Another way of putting it, I guess you could say, is, is to have, uh, as they say, care or benevolence. Secondly, you have to have competence. Now, competence being a person wouldn't have trust in a doctor to work on their car, nor would you have trust in me to work as a doctor. I'm a mechanic, not a doctor. That's the type of thing that is spoken there. Do they, does a person not only have concern for you, but in your situation perhaps, but do they also have confidence to be able to, to work in that task? But most importantly, it's consistency. Amen. And th this is something that consistency is probably where I fall flat. Consistency being that my children, whenever I tell them expect something, expect to be able to trust in my word. When dad says we're going to go fishing, they expect me that we're going to go fishing. And a lot of times I, I fail in that. I may have the best of intentions, but I don't follow through. I'm not consistent. Just that one lack of consistency now has distrust w with my children to me of, well, dad said we're going to go fishing. Oh, yeah, I'll believe it when I see it. It's amazing how just one of these three things, that's why they call it a trust triad, is these three main important things to be able to build trust, you must have consistency, competency, and concern, true concern about each other. And why this all matters to me is because I too am a captain. Now all captains take their arcs through stormy seas in life. And all captains' arcs are damaged in the storms of life. 
but every good captain maintains, repairs, and restores his ark. And every good captain also listens to the advice of other captains to make his ark more seaworthy. And when we have doubts, all good captains seek out advice as well. And we captains must warn our fellow captains when we see a storm coming at them. Now, just because you warn someone doesn't mean that they will be able to do anything about it. And that's the thing that we have to realize. You can warn, but it may not change the storm. But it'll help them to know that someone cared enough that they could very well be right there in the storm or at the edge of it to help them through it. And every captain in the storms of life does not choose to lose his ark in shipwreck. I don't know of any seafaring man that sees a storm and decides to plow off into it. And I pray that if indeed I do shipwreck, that I've surrounded myself with enough good captains to pull my crew and I to safety. That's why church is important. But the thing that I would tell all of you young captains and that may be looking for first mates is to never let the fear of shipwreck keep you from setting sail. Don't let the fear of shipwreck keep you from setting sail. The ideal thing is to surround you with those that when shipwreck comes as a community, we're all there together to be able to help repair your art. And this day may all the captains, first mates, and crews here today be exceptionally filled by the Holy Spirit. And may our homes, brethren, be filled to overflowing with the love of Jesus Christ, the captain of our souls. Amen.